can have a seat. You know, nowadays, uh, a lot of us watch more like streaming TV and movies than we do anything on live TV, and so we can watch stuff from lots of different eras. And one of the things that I've noticed is if I don't know exactly when something came out, especially if it's in the last 20 years or so, you can pretty well tell by the kind of phone they're using, right? I mean, if it has a cord, it's the last century, last millennium, right? But then you watch, and if they have a flip phone, you sort of know when that is, an early iPhone, you can guess when that is, and it's just become so much of a part of our life that we know what year it is based on what kind of phone people carry, and it really has changed our everyday life, right? We're always connected, people around us can always call, text, we get emails, we keep up with the news that way, right? Um, we can watch those very streaming shows shows on our phones. It makes everyday life very different. It also means that we're connected in ways we don't always enjoy because the people who love can get us, but there's some people we don't love so much who want to sell us stuff who can also get us most any time of the day. So it has changed a lot. This series that we're in is all about change. And we're thinking about how the teaching of Jesus can turn our lives upside down, not by technology, obviously, but by what he says and how he challenges us to rethink some of the presuppositions that we bring to our lives. And today, I want us to think about how Jesus challenges our assumptions and how we think about religion. Now, religion's a word that's taken on a lot of negative connotations. People will say, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church, or I don't love religion. I don't love this organized stuff where you're building buildings and taking up offerings and you hire people and all that. I'm not interested in religion, anything structured, but you can talk about God if you want to. But at its core, religion just simply means how we get to know God, how we relate to God. Religion is a word that shows up in the Bible. It's a biblical word. And we have lots of different approaches to that in our culture. Whether people want to call it religion or call it something else, we still have different ways that people try to relate to God. Now, in our culture, we're, <clears throat> we're in a very pluralistic culture, right? So there's Christians. And within that, there's lots of different Christian traditions that are represented. But then there's also Buddhism and Islam and pagan religions that are beginning to take hold. That's very popular in our world. And so people will choose the one that sort of interests them, the one that speaks to them, and adopt it. Or they'll take a little bit of various things, things that make sense to them, things that make them feel good, and mix it all up, and then that's my religion. Maybe different from everybody else's, the technical word for this is syncretism, and it shows up as far back as the Old Testament. It's always been there. And so people will do that, and that's how they decide they're going to relate to God. Okay, or there's sort of a whole different approach to this. I relate to God by seeing things in our world, right? This is how I know about God. People will say, I feel closest to God. Some Christians say this too. I feel closest to God when I'm out in nature. And certainly a lot of us, I think, have had moments when we're on top of a mountain at a lake. For me, one of the best times was at Yosemite Park. You look out and you say, man... This is transcendent. This is beyond me, and I'm getting a glimpse of something beyond me, God himself, by being in this place at this moment, right? But nature doesn't tell us everything about God. It's an incomplete picture. And not everything in nature speaks about who God is, right? There's some 
And there's some ugly things in nature if you look around. There's some brutality. It's, it's a tough thing. And so not all of that tells us who God is. We might say, well, I know who God is by the way I see love at work in the world, the way I feel about people like my kids, my spouse, my parents. That tells me something of God. Or when I see people that treat each other with kindness and love, that speaks about the nature of God. And I think there's some truth in that because God is love, right? We read that in Scripture. But again, it's incomplete because our love for each other is both incomplete and imperfect. And so sometimes what, what love shows in our relationships may not be God's love because we mess it up a lot. Maybe we say that about justice. There's a sense of justice within me, but we know our justice is also incomplete. Now, each one of these things, whether they're other religions or whether they're things we see in the world around us, there's some truth in all of them. I mean, we might want to say, well, there's the only truth in religions is in Christianity, but I mean, let's face it, there are some things that other religions affirm that we affirm as Christians. There are stories that show up in the Koran that also show up in Scripture. So we can't say it's all false because we'd be saying part of Christianity is false. But how do we understand how our world approaches religion and what does Jesus have to say about this? That's what I want us to think about today. Jesus talked about religion in his own teaching, and though it was very different in his world, I think what he had to say then speaks to us now. And to get at that, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 11. First three weeks of this series, we were parked in Mark 10. Now we move one chapter forward, and there's been a real turning point between those two chapters. Uh, the first big section of Mark is all about Jesus' ministry, a lot of it in Galilee. Then he comes to Judea, and we see that in Mark chapter 10. But in Mark 11, Jesus goes into Jerusalem in the final week of his life. Okay, on Sunday, we have what we think of as Palm Sunday, right? Jesus is going into Jerusalem on a colt. People take palm branches, take their clothes. They put them on the road for this colt to walk on as Jesus comes in the city. They are seeing Jesus as a conquering hero. They are expecting that before the end of the week, he's going to raise up an army. Many of them in the group who were shouting Hosanna would be the very ones that they thought they would be fighting alongside Jesus against the Romans. It turns out very different from that. But it's the week leading up to Passover, the most holy of their holidays, a time that they celebrated their exodus from Egypt. And so there would be increasing festivities in Jerusalem, and Jesus is coming in to be part of that. But of course, by the end of the week, he would be hanging on a cross. Now each day, Jesus spent the day in Jerusalem and then went to Bethany, which was a short walk, and he would spend the night there, maybe with his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We know about them. And then in the morning, he would go back to Jerusalem for all that was going on. On that Sunday, Jesus enters the city as a victorious king. And then we read this, Mark chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple courts. This is the place he goes first. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now at first glance, we might think that Mark is describing a country boy who's come to the city and he wants to see all the big sights, the bright lights, all that. But I don't think that's what Mark is saying. Jesus has been to Jerusalem before. It seems more that Mark is painting a picture of Jesus, Lord of all, Lord of the temple, coming to Jerusalem to inspect what is his. 
to see if it stands right before God. And there's a bit of a foreshadowing because it's like Jesus wants to do something, but it's already late. So he leaves the city and goes to Bethany. That's Sunday. This is what happens on Monday when he gets up to go back to Jerusalem. The next day, they were leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find, if it, find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. But it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. And we want to say, okay, Jesus, this doesn't really make sense. Why would you expect figs on a tree when it's not the season and then get mad and curse the poor tree? Well, it seems like what's going on here is what the scholars look at is that uh, trees in, the, in that area of the world, the kind of fig trees that are native, produce two crops of figs. This is the way it works. Early in the spring, they have early figs that come out before the plant even leaves out. These do eventually ripen, but they're usually not eaten because they don't taste very good. But then the leaves come out, those drop, and then the later figs come. That's what everybody gathered and ate and shared and all that stuff. But Jesus is too early for that. But he goes up to this tree, and even though it's not the season for the figs you would normally eat, it doesn't even have the early figs on it. It's just leaves. And it's telling Jesus, this tree's not going to produce fruit this year. And so Jesus curses that tree and says it's never going to produce fruit again. Now what's going on here is sort of like an acted parable. Parables are stories that Jesus told to make some kind of point, and I think he's doing something here to make a point. We see it at work all the time in the Old Testament. The prophets often spoke for God, but they also did something, and their actions also taught the people. I think that's what Jesus is doing. He's speaking... But he's also acting, and the disciples are going to learn a lesson from this. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. Okay, so Jesus leaves the fig tree, and then he goes back to Jerusalem. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. So, okay, what's... What's going on? Why is Jesus doing this? He saw all this at work the night before, but it's late. He comes back and Jesus is ready for action. And we don't see Jesus angry very often, but it sort of seems like he is here. What's happening? Well, remember, it's the time leading up to the Passover. And Jews from all over the Roman world would come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Some of them Maybe this would be a once-in-a-lifetime event because it was expensive. And they would be there, and if they came to Jerusalem, to the temple at Passover, they're expected to do two things. One, offer a sacrifice, an animal, blemish-free. Okay. Second, give an offering, a specific offering. Now, if you came from a long way away, especially if it's by boat, you're probably not bringing your animal with you. So when you get to Jerusalem... You need to buy an animal for the offering. Second, that, that uh, offering that they made, the, the money offering, had to be given in a specific currency. And it wasn't a currency that was used across the empire, so you had to change your money from your currency into this required currency for the offering. 
And when you did that, there was a surcharge on the exchange. And this surcharge was used to fund improvements, repairs to the temple, and the priests. It was expected. The people needed both the money changers and the sacrifices. So why does Jesus drive everybody out? A lot of times, if you have an English Bible, you'll see that at the beginning of this section, it might say something like, the cleansing of the temple, or Jesus cleanses the temple. We have to remember all those headings come later. They're to help us out, but they're not in the original text. Okay, so we add those so they're not inspired. And we have to look at that one and wonder if it's exactly right. Because what that says, Jesus cleanses the temple, is that there's something wrong with the temple, and by doing this, Jesus fixes it so the temple is now right. And that's been a traditional interpretation of this passage. But in the last 20 years, scholars have done a lot of work on how we understand the temple and how the temple was understood in Jesus' time and what Jesus' words here mean. And it seems that Jesus might be doing something both deeper and more powerful and pointed than just sort of getting some people out that he didn't want in the building at the time. And it's his words and the rest of the story that help us see that. So what did Jesus say as he taught them? So Jesus acted, but he also spoke. He said, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began to look for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Okay, what's going on here? What we do know for sure is that what Jesus did and said got him in trouble. And if he wasn't already sort of a target, he was after this. All the religious leaders feel threatened by Jesus, and I think there's a reason that they do. And they want Jesus dead. They want to be done with Jesus. So this sets in motion what will happen the rest of the week. Jesus will not be a conquering hero, at least in the minds of the people. They'll want him dead by Friday, partly because of what these leaders were doing. But what does Jesus say here that helps us understand. He says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? Well, to understand that, we need to think about the temple. For ancient Jews, there were two things that were most important in their religion. In their sort of understanding who God is, there were two things that counted the most. First, the law. All the commands that are given in the first five books of our Bible, that was their Pentateuch, their law, that mattered to them the most, and they tried to follow everything that was there. Ten commandments and all the other commandments, okay? So we got that. Number two, temple. For them, the temple was the dwelling place of God. For them, the temple was the intersection of heaven and earth. This is where God's place and our place come together. All right? This was literally for them the most holy place on the face of the earth. This was at the heart of their religion. That's where you made your sacrifices. That's where you're related to God. There were synagogues all over the Roman Empire. You don't make sacrifices there. You just learn there. Okay? The temple is where you make your sacrifice to God. This is the heart of their 
religion. And Jesus says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, the temple in Jerusalem is designed for Jews to worship Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God that we see as creator, the God who gave the law, sent the prophets, all that. There would rarely be Jews that were involved in this. Now, there was an outer court where, I mean, Gentiles that were involved. There was an outer court where Gentiles could go, and sometimes people who were called God-fearers, Gentiles who were interested in God but not ready to become Jews, they would go in that outer court, sometimes for business. But this building, the temple, would never be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus is pointing to something else. And here's what it is. If we read the other Gospels and we read places like Hebrews, Jesus is saying this temple, this whole system is going away. He's condemning the whole thing because from now on, it's not the temple that is the dwelling place of God. It's not the temple that is the intersection of heaven and earth. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Because God has taken on human form. We don't need the temple anymore. God is living, dwelling among humans as Jesus Christ. And beyond that, it would just be a few weeks until God's Spirit would be poured out on God's people and God would make them the temple. We are the temple. Not even this building, okay? It's us. You look back at the temple and what you find is that the temple that Solomon built for the worship of Yahweh, when it is dedicated, the people know for sure in that moment they see the glory of God come to rest on the temple, His dwelling place. And many years later when they had, their sin had outstripped their faith and God was ready to depart, they knew that God's glory had left that temple. Never happened with this temple that Herod built. But on the day of Pentecost, just a matter of weeks after this moment, God's Spirit would clearly come on His people. Not the building, the people. And so God's temple was Jesus, and God's temple would be the church. Not the church building, the church as the people. The way that we become God's temple is through Jesus. If we want to talk about religion as how we relate to God, it begins and ends ultimately with Jesus. We are made into God's temple because of Jesus. We don't relate through the law. We don't relate through a building. We relate through Jesus. And that's really the core lesson of this passage. We know God through Jesus. Now, let's finish this story because I think it binds it all together. Verse 20. In the morning, so Jesus has gone back to Bethany. He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem again the next day on Tuesday. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree. Same old fig tree that had nothing on it yesterday. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots. It's not just been a hot, dry day and the leaves are wilted. This thing is dead. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Okay, you see how that's bookends? You've got 
the fig tree story at the beginning and Jesus' pronouncement of a curse on that fig tree and the fig tree story at the end, fig tree's dead. In the middle, you've got the temple. So what, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, listen, this fig tree that should have life, that should produce fruit, is dead. It's worthless. And I'm cursing it. In the middle, this temple that should produce fruit and life as the dwelling place of God is dead. And something else is going to replace it. And that something is Jesus. Now, Jesus is challenging everything they understood about religion. It's not going to be the temple. The temple is not the, the, the meeting place. The temple is not the intersection of heaven and earth. This place in Jerusalem doesn't matter. It's Jesus and God's people scattered across the face of the earth. What does that say to us? We live in this world in which people are trying to relate to, to, Jesus, to, to God through different religions through things that they see in the world around them. And Jesus' words are speaking to us today, saying, listen, there may be bits of truth in all that stuff, but ultimately it is incomplete because it is Jesus who, if we think about what He said, and we think about His death, burial, and resurrection, we are forced to grapple with the fact that Jesus is God's Son. That's what these four Gospels are saying to us. Jesus is the Son of God. And we've got to decide, what am I going to do with that? There's there's no way I can say, well, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. I'm not so sure. There's some good teaching in there. I'll take some of what Jesus said about loving people and all that, mix it with some other things I like, and that's my religion. We have to grapple with the fact that Jesus says He's God's Son, and God proves that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What do I do with that? Because it's that that allows us to relate to God. Because it's that that offers us forgiveness. It's that that is a victory over sin and death in our lives. It's that that calls us to our complete allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's not just that we as Christians are saying, hey, we're right and we want to know everybody, we want everyone else to know they're wrong. The issue is, here's Jesus. What are you going to do with him? Because we can't just ignore him. And if you find that his claims are true, and he's the way to know God. And there might be things that point you to God in other places, but everything has got to be filtered through the name, the teaching, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Because he is the intersection of heaven and earth. And so here we are. sitting in church, worshiping, wanting to know God. And the good news for us today is that God wants us to know Him. And He showed that most clearly, most completely, in Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, He not only invites us 
into a relationship with him. But he says it's going to be through you that people are going to see Jesus and know me. What are you going to do with that? Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for Jesus. Thankful that through him, we know you. Thankful that through him and through your spirit, we become your temple, the intersection of heaven and earth, your dwelling place. And God, we don't always understand how you could choose to dwell in us because we feel so imperfect. And yet we're thankful to know that you do. God, we pray that through what we do, how we live our lives and what we speak, people will know you as well. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship.